Welcome back. Thursday, May 18th, 2023. I am Seth Leibson. Got Bill Davidson to my right. I've got a producer, David Dahl, across from me here. And our phone number for y'all is 602-508-0960. 602-508-0960. If you'd like to call in or weigh in or raise an issue. I've been thinking a lot lately about perspective and fact, cognate thoughts to the larger questions of whether truth matters here anymore, whether we are now in a moment so suffused with falsehoods and lies that truth and fact just don't matter. It's all seemingly about sheer will, power. The question Abraham Lincoln posed, does right make might or does might make right, is the question of the day. He posed that question at the conclusion of his famous Cooper Union speech in 1860 when he said this, quote, Let us have faith that right makes might, and in that faith, let us, to that end, dare to do our duty as we understand it. Close quote. And just before that, he gave a short distillation on the morality and immorality of slavery. To argue slavery's morality, he said, one had to, his words, unsay what George Washington said and undo what George Washington did. This might be the first example in American political rhetoric warning against historical revisionism. That is, you can overturn the tables of right and wrong or distort the view of them or revise them only by overturning, distorting and revising history. He, Lincoln, in his lesson on morality, gave us a lot to think about if we adopt it to modern thinking and news. Bear with me. This is an important quote of his from his Cooper Union address, and I'm quoting, if slavery is right, all words, acts, laws, and constitutions against it are themselves wrong and should be silenced and swept away. If it is right, we cannot justly object to its nationality, its universality. If it is wrong, they cannot justly insist upon its extension, its enlargement. All they ask we could readily grant if we thought slavery was right. All we ask they could as readily grant if they thought it wrong. Their thinking it right and our thinking it wrong is the precise fact upon which depends the whole controversy. Thinking it right as they do They are not to blame for desiring its full recognition as being right. But thinking it wrong as we do, can we yield to them? Can we cast our votes with their view and against our own? In view of our moral, social, and political responsibilities, can we do this? Close quote. What Lincoln was asking for was a universal standard of judgment, that what was right or wrong should determine what we do and how we act as opposed to might-making right. Might-making right is whatever a majority or a powerful dictator or a king says. And the notion that might-making right is, is that that majority, that dictator, that king, should not determine what we do and how we act, at least not with the gloss and dressing of that defining its moral or political rightness or correctness. Shakespeare's Hamlet threw his hands up famously on this question when he said, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. 
So if we take this lesson seriously, we have to take the concern that lying is becoming the default mode of public debate in the 21st century. We have to take the concern that non-factual truths, we have to take the concern that wishing something to be true or feeling something to be true does not make it so. Just as revising history or changing history does not make it history or true, but can lead us into very dangerous waters or policies. Wishing something to be true. Let's stay there for a moment. I was thinking on that with regard to three Joe Biden appointees when I read the news this morning that Sam Brinton was arrested again yesterday as a fugitive from justice. You will recall Brinton is the non-binary former nuclear energy official who posed and dressed in elaborate women's clothing and makeup and was ultimately arrested and fired for stealing people's luggage at airports. But before that was known, he, or they, or whatever pronouns apply here, was heralded and celebrated as an important and great appointee of Joe Biden's, a major step towards LGBTQ plus rights as the first non-binary political appointee in an administration. Inherent in that celebration and satisfaction of the Biden administration and its supporters and defenders was that the notion that because of his non-binary identity, he was up to and qualified for the job and indeed a role model. He was right for the job and it was wrong to question his character or judgment, especially his cloying, ornate and elaborate makeup and costumery. We fell into the same trap with Pete Buttigieg who holds a serious cabinet position in the Biden administration, heralded and celebrated as an important and great appointee of Joe Biden's due to his sexual identity and orientation. Certainly, being the mayor of a town 72% smaller than Tempe could not have been the chief or anything close to a leading reason for such a big job. And thus, with every transportation crisis we see in this country, we are reminded of this routinely. Then, of course, comes Kamala Harris, a U.S. senator of no notable accomplishments whose entry into a presidential race came with great fanfare and fizzled before the first Democratic primary. She made huge headlines challenging Joe Biden in a debate about him being a racist. And when she joined the Biden ticket, laughed off that charge to Stephen Colbert, who asked her the only serious question he's ever asked someone, which was, how she who called Biden a racist could join his presidential ticket. She engaged in her default cackle and said it was a debate. She said it three times as if that were a legitimate answer to the question, how you joined the ticket of someone you called a racist, when what she was conveying is it didn't matter that she said it before or called him a racist or she didn't mean it or both, which was which would mean, of course, nothing really matters. Certainly not a charge of racism, after all. We've come an awfully long way in our understanding of racism with that notion, haven't we, that it doesn't matter, especially as Joe Biden continues to exploit the issue as serious as he did at Howard University this past weekend. But Kamala Harris stands for something else here, too, that her qualification for the vice presidency and implicitly, especially with an aged president, The presidency qualification for being president, it was all based on her race. It could not have been based on her helping secure California's electoral votes. Those would have gone to Biden had he named anyone his vice president. It could not have been based on her gender as a candidate 
and her candidacy for vice presidency, as it was touted, because there already was a female candidate for the vice presidency on a major ticket as far back ago as 1984 and as recently as 2008 and a female candidate for the presidency in 2016. But touted as a landmark, it was. Recall or look up all the stories about what her nomination meant and would mean to young girls all across the country. But people convinced themselves of that. And of course, in her speeches, she kept saying that. That is, her nomination and election was a role modeling and message to young girls throughout America. It is worth pausing and noting that these things, by the way, only run in one direction. The first Republican nominee for the vice presidency, who was a woman, and eight years before Harris's nomination got none of that and exploited none of that. But Harris's role modeling for young women couldn't have been true, really, for the reasons above. The message was sent several times before and with bigger and more important offices like the actual presidency. So it had to be her race. By mere dint of being a racial minority, she was qualified for the job. And we convinced ourselves of that. But thinking these things, Pake Hamlet, does not actually make them so. It does not make them so about Brinton. It does not make them so about Buttigieg. It does not make them so about Harris. These are fictions we tell ourselves. And since these jobs actually matter, since nuclear energy matters, since crime matters, since competency and transportation issues matter, and since the presidency matters, we all suffer the consequences of these unfactual or non-factual truths we are forced to accept that these people are qualified. Just as we were forced to accept that someone thinking something makes it true, as I guess Sam Brinton thinks he is not a man. He is not just as I guess Sam Brinton thinks he not a man any more than he thinks he not a thief. We do this with a lot of things, things that just aren't true, as Joe Biden tries to convince us of things that just aren't true. And we accept him with regard to him, like his biography, to take but one small example, repeatedly telling us of civil rights activism and arrests that just never happened. And yet it doesn't seem to matter. You know what we used to think true? We used to think skin color and gender didn't determine thought or action or qualification. We used to think because you were born into one race or one body, you were no less than anyone else. And because you were, no, because you were born into a different skin color or gender, you were no better than anyone else. We used to think race should not determine qualifications or thinking any more than gender should. We did that based on another truth that's been defenestrated, that we were all created equal because we were all equally human beings. That understanding is how and why we could say discrimination was not only wrong, but bad. No matter what people thought, it was a bad, an inherent and self-evident wrong. We don't think that anymore. We don't tell ourselves that anymore. We used to think America and democracy and republicanism were ideals and great things. We don't think and do that anymore either. Instead, the fiction we buy into is our country was founded not in 1776, where we taught the world about self-evident truths of equality, but some, no, some new year, 157 years prior, and that America was never that great, or that thinking America is great is an extremist position. We used to think communism was bad, 
was evil. We don't think that anymore either. We celebrate it and censor criticism of it, just as China itself, or like the Soviet Union in its existence, censored criticism of their ideologies. My plea, a return to a Lincolnian understanding of what should constitute right and wrong, and not the Shakespearean notion that our thinking determines it. Thinking, after all, unlike truth, can be manipulated. People can think a lot of things, after all, and people's thinking can be shaped by a lot of things, including increasingly today, propaganda and non-factual truths. Thinking something that is not true, especially about yourself, is known as grandiose delusion in the field of psychiatry, like the Napoleon delusion is, after all, a delusion, which is to say a mental health disease. Let us not live in delusion or be deluded. We aren't and shouldn't be a sick society after all. I'm Seth Leifson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That's a John Sebastian song Johnny Cash is doing with June Carter uh, at the San Quentin concert, if I'm not mistaken. The album that you had when you were young? Yeah, guy? yeah, the one we were talking about yesterday. Yeah. And John Sebastian is known for what? Love and Spoonful. And a song we actually play here, Welcome Back, Cotter. He did the theme song he sang in. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. John Sebastian. Love. Hot Town, Summer in the City, you must know that. Of course. Do you believe in magic? You must know that. Yeah, that's all John Sebastian and Darling Companion. By the way, you got a uh, political pin for us today? <laughs> no, I, I don't. Oh, you I, don't? Yeah, I have a, I have an evening commitment tonight, so I didn't wear one. Yeah. Oh, what are you doing tonight? Wait, uh, if, by the way, why does... Why does whoa, 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 whoa. Let, let's, let's, let's engage in a little logic here. Because you have an evening commitment, you can't wear a political pin. Because you can't take it off before the commitment? I suppose I could have. It was just, uh, you That's know. That's a real heavy, to, to heavy lift. Paraphrase Jen Psaki, it was not top of mind. It wasn't top of mind. We need a, you to level set. Pin on. Yeah. That's another phrase of art that's yeah. everywhere now. Have you heard it, Bill? Level set? Everyone's using level set these days. Um, it wasn't top of mind. Yeah, so should I circle back mind. to you on this? Yeah, you'll have to circle back to me tomorrow, and I'll come up with something else to. What are you doing you. tonight? Anything fun? Uh, yeah, I'm going dancing as usual, but uh, with some, you know, companions. Wonderful. It'll be, it'll be great. Yeah, yeah. What kind of dancing? Ballroom is what you train in, right? I, I do. Yeah, I do sort of like a thirty style swing dancing. But tonight I'm going to dabble in some country dancing. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know the Paul McCartney song, Ballroom Dancing? No. Why don't we add it to our ins and outs? We will have to. Yeah, yeah. Ballroom Dancing. It's a great song. Thank you, David. Um, you look great. Have fun tonight. And uh, two political pins tomorrow, maybe, I guess. Two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One on each side of the lapel. Didn't, yeah. <laughs> didn't Mork, on, Mork and Mindy have pins on his suspenders? I thought or they were br- just rainbows. Were they just rainbow? Br- it might have been like, you know, peace and anti-war. Uh, that, I'm uh, thinking yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. yeah and by right. the way, we call them braces, not suspenders, correct? Or galluses. I've heard that one before. Stop yeah. it. You're done. You're done. Uh, this is... <laughs> um, this is not a this is not a laughing matter. Um, but what's interesting to me is the timing of it. You'll recall yesterday uh, we were talking about one of the lies we're all just living with is that Diane Feinstein has her truth. She corrected a reporter at Slate wrongly 
the reporter at Slate asked her about her absence from Washington, D.C. over the last three months, her absence from the Senate in Washington, D.C. over the last three months. And she said, no, I was here. You either know or you don't know. Her truth was that she was in Washington, D.C., doing her job in the Senate. And um, the Slate reporter um, wrote a story about it saying, you know, what an odd time we live in. Well, wake up and smell the coffee, right? Or welcome to the party pal might be another way to put it. But a lot of us were talking about this for the last three months, for the last three months. And we were talking about it in the context of John Fetterman as well. And I don't know why he's getting a pass. You will recall the NBC reporter who did to John Fetterman during the campaign what the Slate reporter – did I say Solana? I meant Slate. The Slate reporter did to Diane Feinstein yesterday got a different reaction. The NBC reporter who told the truth about Fetterman and how um, incoherent he was, she got lambasted by her colleagues. She got criticized for – what, pulling back the curtains and revealing what you would have thought members of the media, journalists, and the press would do, which is pull back the curtain. She pulled back the curtain, though, and exposed her profession as a group of liars covering for John Fetterman. So they all attacked her. They attacked the truth teller. That's what we do here. We attack the truth teller. But yesterday, with regard to Diane Feinstein, Seems not to have happened because the paper of record today, I say it in quotes, of course, um, the New York Times has an interesting headline. Feinstein suffered more complications from illness than were publicly disclosed. And then it says, as the subtitle, Senator Dianne Feinstein, 89, whose recent bout with shingles included contracting encephalitis and she is frailer than ever. But she remains unwilling to entertain discussions about leaving the Senate. There are a few congressmen who have said something about the need for her to do so. And we're going to, I guess, just live with this fiction that it's okay that she can maintain her seat and power and responsibility in the Senate. I'll tell you what it means. It means the same thing, and it's an uncomfortable thing to say, but it's eminently true. That is going on with John Fetterman. And in fact, was going on for too long with John McCain. We are not being represented by these people. The press releases they put put out are not being written by them, which was never the case, but they aren't being approved by them. We are being represented by the staffers of these people. That's what's going on right now. We are being represented by unelected anonymous staffers who have zero accountability Because the Senate is not going to police itself the way it would in a rational society, the way it would in a society that calls itself a representative democracy or a republic, where these people are elected to represent us, not their staff. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Um... Two really great things at Powerline, uh, great in that they are educational, not great in that they happen to be the fact of the matter. Not good facts, not great facts, but great truths and great contributions uh, to our knowledge. Uh, Steve Hayward, in his daily chart, is showing what the move to defund the police has wrought. It was supposed to promote greater equity. 
the unspoken truth, and this is the problem. That, that, this is the problem in society. Truths go unspoken, and truth-tellers get lambasted, or the liars get promoted and celebrated. But in any event, the unspoken truth is that the chief victims of this defund-the-police mania are the people it was supposed to be helping. There's a, a chart from the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, showing um, the fire, firearm homicide rate, rates in men. Uh, and the dramatic, steep increase that took place, like a hockey stick, from 2018 forward, right when the defund the police movement began. And then it's, I mean, if it were a ski slope, it would be a black diamond. And by the way, as Steve also shows, based on uh, reporting from the Uniform Crime Report, nowhere is this fact more evident than in Minnesota. Nowhere is it more evident than in Minnesota. Um, yeah, fire, firearm homicide rates in men by race. The black, the black American, the African-American community, they got hit hard, hard by the defund the police movement, hard and um, fast fast. It's not as Joe Biden told the crowd at, uh, told the graduates at uh, Howard University. It's not white supremacy that is their greatest threat. It isn't. It's a lot of other things. It's not that. The other thing you can glean from Powerline is a great line my friend Steve passed on to me, a great quote my friend Steve passed on to me that goes not only to that, but some of the other things we've been talking about from the great uh, sociologist Robert Nisbet. There is, he said, no substitute for punishment in a social order, and that means holding human beings accountable, treating them as human, and therefore responsible. Concern for human rights is rampant these days, but a right is possible in the strict sense only for beings who can be rationally regarded as responsible. The celebrated dignity of man oozes away in an atmosphere where man is so little prized for his unique mental and moral qualities as to be classified from the start a victim. Rights, duties, responsibilities, restraints, conscience, moral codes, all of these are visibly softening and decaying under the influence of victimology. No longer a specialty of criminology, but a gigantic malaise of Western society. My friend Steve was equally telling me on that issue, uh, on that use of the word victimology um, and victim, when you think about victims' rights or when you think about using the word victim itself, one of the great champions, I think he attributed it to a Miss Harrington back in uh, D.C. in the 80s, gave a talk about the importance of protecting the word victim. She said, Take the word victim, but protect it. Don't let it suffer syntactical saturation. Don't let it get word inflation and overuse. And I thought about that in the context not only of the word victim, which unfortunately has suffered syntactical saturation and inflation, meaning less valuable as a word. That's what happens in inflation. Things become less valuable. Money just as much as words. 
I thought about it with the word victim, just as I thought about it with other things that used to have special significance, special imports, special poignancy, special punch, because their meaning meant something. Words like racist, words like fascist, words like white supremacy and white supremacist. We didn't protect the import of those words. Instead, we diminished their value by using them to apply and paste them on just anything we don't agree with. It's an abuse of the human because it's an abuse of our language, which is one of the few things, as Aristotle pointed out, which keeps us human. That's good. That's Paul McCartney's ballroom dancing, right? Yeah, sure yeah. is. You'll, you'll, we'll have a chorus for the out part, right? We certainly can. <laughs> we should. It's good. Have you heard the chorus yet? Have you gotten to it? Oh, All... but you know what? In having been uh, your producer in the short time that I've been here, yes. I have discovered that I do enjoy Paul McCartney's solo music. Oh, yeah. He is, he is one of the uh, great living musical geniuses of our time. I think the other day I was talking about uh, Ram with you, uh, his uh, solo album, and uh, I like McCartney too as well from 1980. Yeah. No, I, Paul McCartney is a musical genius, and I think versatile, versatile may be over, over, overstating it, but I think uh, competent on almost every instrument. I think there's a song, I can't remember which one, what, what was it? You know what I'm saying? There was coming a, up. Yeah. Was it coming up? Yeah, where he plays every instrument. Yeah, yeah. that's the one? It's yep. coming up? Yeah. Yeah, he plays every instrument. He's something... Okay, we're going to stay with music for a moment. Hello, John. How are you, sir? Hello, Seth. Thanks for taking my call. Always. Um, yesterday, it I... Says I you're, it, the, it says you're downtown. Yeah, I mean, I, I said downtown Phoenix, because so it's because a lot of times I call in and say it's John from Phoenix, Yeah, and you always, I think, seem to try to figure out John from, you know, maybe like you have numerous Johns. So oh, John okay, and Fien- okay, all right, <laughs> you're downtown, John, all right, good. Hey, so here, I want to get in my, so I probably only have, a, I don't know, maybe four minutes with you, so, <laughs> so here's, before you guys cut me off and say we're going to a commercial <laughs> or we've got John Dembrowski or something, but anyhow. <laughs> the other John in so Phoenix, okay. Here's what I want to say, yes, I, I went to the podcast last night and I saw the, I saw the liner about, you talked about Miles Davis again, you know, because you and I talked about Miles. And, and I, I went to it, and I listened to a couple of your podcasts last night, late last night, and I heard the part about Miles, and you know what, Seth? I agree with you on 99% of topics, Yeah. and, and you are a po- political mentor, because I'm sort of new to this for the past couple of years, voraciously okay. getting into it. All right. Um, but Miles Davis, just as you said, that uh, Paul McCartney is a musical genius, I think Miles is a genius, and and when when you said last night in your you know on your show yesterday, nobody looks at Miles and says you know if they're a trumpeteer like I want to be like Miles. Well, Seth, I just went to Google before I even called you here, and I'm prepare. I always prepare for my call a little <laughs> bit with you, so I don't so I don't ramble on on different points, but. The first thing that came up on the Google search when I typed in all-time greatest jazz trumpeteers, Miles Davis was the first thing that came up. And, then, you know, amongst like four, three or four others. 
uh, Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong, etc. Um, and then I went to another link of a, a reputable website, and it chose Miles as the number three man. So I was like, okay, I, I'm not finding what that said as far as like you know, like nobody ranks him up there, you know, with trumpeters. And then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, you're basing it on technicals, like the technicality. No, I'm basing it. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. Go on, go on, go on. But I'm basing it on creativity, yeah. innovation, sure. bluesiness, I get it. feeling. No, I get it. And, I get it. And then I look at, I look at the, my uh, Miles Davis set, and if you, said, if you haven't listened to him for a while, I do consider it probably the greatest jazz CD ever. I understand. Kind of blue. I, I understand. I understand. He is okay. he is a unique, and I will concede because it's a field of music I'm just not excellent at, at understanding jazz. I, I don't understand jazz well. Um, mm-hmm. But I will grant that jazz experts are right when they say he was a great jazz musician. I am trying yeah. to impart... That while that may be true, and I am willing to concede it, he was not a great trumpet player, period. He was not a great trumpet player. Now, stay with me, John. I'm not sure what, 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 what you turned up on Google, but as you were talking, I'm looking at some expert forms here. No. Mm-hmm. he w- Was Miles Davis the best trumpet player ever? No. He was a brilliant right. musical thinker who used a right. limited trumpet technique— to say right. things no one else was saying. Jazz guitar right. online, he wasn't a great trumpet player in the same way that John Lennon wasn't a great guitar player. They were great musicians. They were not great with their instrument. No one wanted to play like them. No one ever said, I want to play trumpet like Miles Davis. No one has ever uttered that sentence. Okay, but when That's you're sitting what I'm around sometimes, I hear you, when you're sitting around sometime and you and you just type in, Greatest jazz trumpeters of all time. Well, they, they mean great, they mean what they mean, John, is greatest jazz musicians who played trumpet. That's, that's what they mean. That's right. That's, that's right. What they and that's mean. why I'm saying I disagreed with you because I think you agree with subjective. me. I think you agree with me. Okay, I do. I I agree with you. Oh, yeah. here's, here's, another, <laughs> here's a couple of funny ones, though. Okay. I don't ever want to hear you guys talking about Captain and Tennille again. I don't care whether it's their their most famous stuff, or that really offbeat song that... Uh, yeah, but, uh, Butterscotch not, Castles, yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. And, the, carp- and the, the Carpenters, Yeah, I will listen to their greatest their greatest songs. I, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Let me get to the topic briefly here. Does truth matter? Yeah, does truth matter? I say to, here's what I've written down here, I say to selective individuals, a small piece of the pie, mostly conservatives with religious-type morals, um, but but you and I have talked about this. If 80% are getting their news from mainstream media, which is brainwashing or apathetic viewers, yeah. uh, I don't think it matters that much. I think what matters to them is that they get what they want, and that might be... Uh, oh, no, I think you're totally right. It's will, uh, and it's, it's, it's might makes right, not right makes might. But what does it say about a society that it's or a country well, no, let me frame it this way a country yeah. that founded itself on the notion of a self-evident truth what is how long can a country last that doesn't care about they the don't truth? care yeah. they don't care well, that's i know but how long can we last if we don't? well right okay and you have obama and then look at this so you have obama again yesterday speaking about the greatest threat 
is is yeah. the other viewpoint. Yeah. Oh, the conservative okay. viewpoint is yeah. the greatest threat. Yeah. Sorry. Plus, they're talking about trying to get rid of AM radio. Yeah. Plus, they're censoring conservative platforms. This Plus, is, this is a big fight. Joke. Yeah, no, this is a big fight. Uh, Ford Ford is, uh, is the company most violative of it. Uh, they aren't... Uh, Putting AM radios in there in any of their new vehicles, and then a couple of electric vehicle manufacturers are making the claim that it interferes with uh, the the uh, the the electric you know the electric uh, the electricity of the vehicle itself, and uh, it's not true. Of course, uh, <laughs> there have been plenty of electric vehicles up until now that had AM radio. We would. Um, we would we would call this a um, a pretext, uh, but we're fighting it, and it's important that we fight it. Eighty million Americans a month listen to AM radio, and uh, it's not going to happen on our watch, John. It's not going to happen on our watch. But thank you. Uh, we'll have more to say about that shortly. I'm going to have a guest on this next week, actually, a guest who is just in Washington D.C. talking to some legislators about this. Yeah, right. Chrysler's. We like Chrysler's here in conservative America. David got a new Chrysler, a new old Chrysler. Did we talk about it on air? We did. Yeah. The Frank Sinatra edition of the Chrysler Imperial. That's right. From 81. Baby blue continental, right? Yeah, but that's a Billy Joel song. Yeah, but it's a blue. It's a baby blue color with a great bumper sticker. Reagan 1980 defeated. What is it? Beat inflation vote Reagan. We'll be right back. Thinking about the Biden economy and you think about the recession possibly on the horizon, you think about transitory inflation, which is anything but, you think about the stock market volatility, you think about the bank failures. Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to any of that, not the stock market, not the Fed. It's an investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. Why Refi is local, locally based. I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on the 101 in Scottsdale Road. I've been there. And you won't be asked to sign a thing. You won't get a sales pitch. They just like talking about their business, which is what they do great at, and they leave the sales pitch up to me. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. I meant to get to this too. Um... And I and I didn't. We we've spent uh, some time here talking about how Randy Weingarten and Joe Biden keep saying that. And my gosh, the former governor of Virginia and head of the DNC is saying that um, when children are in school, there are our kids. They're not the parents' kids. And Karen Jean Pierre, the White House press secretary, uh, said this just most early uh, earlier this week saying that children belong to all of us. Now, all of this is in the context of the LGBTQ plus debate. 
And so when Joe Biden says there's no such thing as someone else's child, parents, our nation's children are all our children, or when Karen Jean-Pierre says that, or when Randy Weingarten says that, and they talk, or or when uh, Cecily Meyer Cruz of the LA uh, of the LA Teachers Federation says that these are our kids. Um, this is uh, this is something I want you to be very worried and concerned about. I want you to be very worried and concerned about it because they truly think that. That's why they are passing legislation that keeps and trying to pass legislation that keeps parents from knowing what their kids are up to at school, specifically when it comes to things like transgender ideology, being called to different names, letting them wear different clothes than when they left the home, helping them in their concepts of transitioning. Take that back to the point I was making in my monologue earlier in the hour. You know, people can be and particularly children can be taught to believe anything. They can be encouraged to believe anything. They can engage in grandiose delusions. They can think they're Batman. They can think they're LeBron James. But we don't let them jump off buildings and we don't let them play in the NBA.